going to hear from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, where the Apostle Paul thanks the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 this morning, please. This is the last uh, doctrinal paragraph of uh, Philippians that launches us into 1 Timothy. Long last, we'll, we'll be completing Philippians today. And it is the reason uh, for Paul's letter or the prompting that, that caused him to write the letter. We've had so much life-changing, strengthening truth that helps us focus on our Savior, tells us more and more what we're here for in this letter. And yet, the reason Paul wrote it is to say thank you for the gift, the offering that he'd received from this wonderful group of growing believers in Macedonia. Paul's going to tell them personally his rejoicing about their gift. He's going to tell them the way he thinks about their gift. He's going to tell them why he's glad about it. And it won't be because it enriches him rather than it enriches them. He's going to tell them that they're unique and that they alone have supported him when others would not or could not, did not understand that as new believers, they were advancing the gospel mission. And the way he writes about it in this paragraph means that you and I are direct beneficiaries of the benevolence, the giving of the Philippians. We said last week from that projector there, we said uh, we want to be Philippians. And this paragraph explains why. Philippians 4, 10 through 19 ends with a promise. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we've said we want to be Philippians in that we want the promises that God gives the Philippians to apply to us. So today's a little bit of an exposition, a little bit looking verse by verse at this little paragraph. And hopefully today we'll be able to share with you what I'm calling the biblical doctrine of reciprocity where there's an expectation that he would say that in verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's reciprocity. It's the doctrine of God has already capitalized us. And then anything we do in our loving obedience for him is a natural, obvious, necessary response. It's what you do in gratitude. And remember, the soul of unbelief is ingratitude in Romans 1. They didn't believe or give thanks. Gratitude reciprocates. And it's not like we're trying to pay God off for what he's done. It's that we're loving him. And he's very clearly specified for us that to love me, keep my commands. The way you love God is you obey him. And I can break down for you why that is that way because of what love is. Love is when you do for the other what God wants for them. Love is when you self-sacrificially give of yourself for another now remember, without regard to self, in terms of what God wants for the other person, that means that it doesn't, it, that means that when it's dealing with personal sin, that we don't agree with sin. Love is not affirmation of sin, even if people really want to sin. It, love is affirmation of a person's value as God's image bearer or as a new creature in Christ. And Love seeks to help someone excise sin, to stop that because it's self-destructive. Love grabs the children out of the street when the buses are coming and says, get out of the street, you're going to get hit by the bus. But we really want to play in the street. Love is what God wants for the other person, and you disregard self and go after that for them. That's love. And when you apply that to God, what does God want for God? He told you what he wants you to do. 
loving God is obeying him. It works in every case. Loving the Lord Jesus is obeying him. Do you know, do you agree with me on loving God is obeying him? I am just captivated by the challenges of the upper room discourse in John 14. Verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he says, I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper. He may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you will be in you. Jesus, right after telling you to keep his command, telling the apostles, keep my commands. If you love me, tells them he's going to send them the Holy spirit. See, we can't keep God's commands without the grace of God working in us. You can't do what pleases God without God, the spirit working in you. That's the filling of the spirit. Jesus goes on to say, it's the spirit of truth in, in verse 18 of John 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also And that day. You will know that I am in my father and you and me and I and you that's fellowship. That's what we mean by fellowship is the Trinitarian intra Trinitarian fellowship of love and reciprocity between the father and son and spirit has been opened to us in Christ. And then he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. You can't dispensational that one away. Jesus is talking to the disciples about what will be the order of the day when the Holy Spirit comes in the age in which we live today. This is the seed doctrine, the upper room discourse that the rest of the epistles grow out of that the, that the new Testament grows out of. This is Jesus speaking only to the disciples about what's coming after he departs and they receive the Holy Spirit, i.e. the church age. He who has my commandments and keeps them, says Jesus, is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That is the promise of rapport and fellowship with God, the father and God, the son and keeping the commandments of the Lord Jesus. This is not legalism. This is the Christian way of life. This is Christian spirituality. You might have heard it this way. If you commit personal sins, you break fellowship with God and you need to confess them. Committing personal sins is disobeying the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one definition of a sin. So yeah, obedience is central to walking by the spirit. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. I think this is the third or fourth time in John 14, starting in verse 15, that we've heard this. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, some will say that just means believing in Jesus as your savior. This is John three sixteen, And if you believe in Christ as your savior, then you have what's promised here. So they will equate obedience to the commands of scripture with faith alone in Christ. There's only one command that faith alone in Christ satisfies is the command to believe the command to love self-sacrificially, which is the context here. That's not what you do to become a Christian. That's what you do because you're a Christian. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now, just a little snippet from John 14. You can't get away from obedience in the Christian life and you can't get away from the works that God called us to do. And so when we're looking here at Paul thanking the Philippians, I want you to show you, this is kind of an aspect. This is a picture of a group of people that are doing what Jesus commanded. They have reciprocated to the Lord. And so God is going to reciprocate to them. And it, remember the picture, it's a little kid playing ball with you. It's a little bitty kid on the floor. You roll the ball. And if, they, if, if they're old enough, they roll it back. And that's so delightful. It comes back and then they roll the ball and you roll it back and they roll the ball. And you're playing ball with your little kid. And that gets better as you get older. Eventually, it's a ball glove. Eventually, it's a football. And you teach that kid to throw a spiral. And he does it 20% of the time and then most of the time. 
relationship with God depends upon what we do with his word. And so much of his word is clearly instructions that he wants us to fulfill, to accomplish. Again, does anyone here know why you received the Holy Spirit when you first believed? Do you know why God gave the church the Holy Spirit? You know why. The Lord Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, that the reason that they would receive the Holy Spirit is so that they could be his witnesses. That's the reason for the church age spiritual life. We have a mission. As a military person, I really learned, I was very ingrained in the concept of a mission. Everybody needs to know the mission. Because if there's anybody still alive, then somebody can still prosecute the mission. Someone can still go after what we're responsible for. So you push the mission statement down to the lowest level so that the commander's driver, if he's the last guy alive, the commander's driver can still fight on and advance the mission. That's the idea of mission is it focuses your attention. It tells you what your life is about. And these Philippians have been and are on mission. <clears throat> so let's get into Philippians 410. That being the context. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, says the Apostle Paul. I rejoiced in the Lord megalos greatly. Why? Because now at last, hati ede pata, now at last, you revived your phroneo, your, your thinking on my behalf. You have revived your thinking. My Bible says concern for me. Well, a concern is a form of thinking. But I just wanted to highlight this word. It keeps showing up in Philippians. Keep thinking on the things above where Christ is in Colossians 1. And uh, throughout Philippians 4, we've, we keep seeing this word to think. You've revived your consideration, your thoughtful concern for me on my behalf. Upon which, literally, upon which, epi plus ho, upon which also you were thinking before, but then, at that time before, you lacked opportunity. I was either traveling and you didn't know where to get hold of me, or you were restrained somehow in your ability to help me, but uh, there's been a lapse, a gap in their uh, support of Paul. There's never been a gap in God's support of Paul, but the channels through which his support come generally are human channels. And sometimes it's this group and sometimes it's that group for Paul. And so this is what he's saying. You have revived your consideration of me and the thinking he's talking about is manifested in their giving. And before you weren't able to, but now you have opportunity. It helps that Paul has a mailbox because he's stuck in prison. He's in prison in Rome, possibly on house arrest, but uh, nevertheless in chains. And he has a place you can send someone to who's static. Paul is often still for a while, but um, he was a moving target when he went from Philippi to Thessaloniki. And they supported him twice then when he was close, as we'll hear. Now... <clears throat> If we take verse 10 alone, we think Paul is glad that he received a gift. He's a little kid at Christmas, opened a present. Yay. It's just what I wanted. But that's not what he means, as we'll read in verse 11. He's not just glad because he received the gift. In fact, he's going to make that explicit. Not that I'm speaking with respect to need. Not that I'm, for I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. Now, Paul is taking in a little mini micro sort of way, he's taking the gift they gave him and turning it around. And he's going to give them a gift now. And we benefit from this gift. It's a gift to us. It's the way to think about your life, a way to think about what you have or what you don't have. When you have much or when you have little, Paul says, this is the key to life. And because of Epaphroditus bringing the, 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 Massive support, apparently, that he brought Paul from the Philippians. He now has to suffer the, the test of having much. He now has to deal with the abundance question. 
But he's going to say, I know how to deal with both abundance and with need. Whatever circumstance I've learned to be content. I have come to know to be abased. This is literal. I have come to know past completed action with current results. I've come to know. You could say how to be abased, but uh, this is the word for basically prostrate, being humbled. And humbled in a financial sense is what he means here. I know how to be abased. This doesn't mean I know how to get myself abased or get fired and lose my, my income. This means that if I find myself in the circumstance where I lack the things that I'd like or that I need, I know how to deal with that. This is a skill that Paul is illustrating for the Philippians, and that's the gift to learn this skill. I pray that you don't have to learn this skill in a food and water sort of way. But if you do have to face it, you'd better face it with Paul the way he does it. We vote. We seek to protect our families. We do our duty as we understand it before God. And circumstances around us are bigger and beyond our capability of managing them. Most of the news reports deal with things that are beyond our decision-making. I think most of the news reports are opaque as far as whether you can determine the truth of what they're saying because of propaganda from foreign agents and those who in our country obeyed and support them, abet and, and support them. But I want you to think about the application of this. I know how to be abased. I know if God provides that in the circumstances I'm in, that I'm just barely scraping by. There's no extra. There's no extra anymore, right? Where you're really hoping for some po' people food because there's been a famine or a shortage. I know how to go get along with this condition. And you can do it as a royal prince or princess and the royal family of God. You can do it as one who is eternally, infinitely wealthy. Now, why in the world would I? I understand a little bit about mathematics. Why would I say that you, believers in Christ, are infinitely wealthy? Infinitely wealthy. And I mean personal possessions, private property that cannot be taken away from you. I know that you're infinitely wealthy because I've read that Jesus is the heir, the one who inherits all things. And so I know that you, if you're a fellow heir with him, according to Romans 8, that you in your position in Christ are an heir with Christ of all things. I also know that you have him. You have the spirit of God in you. You are infinitely wealthy. Whether you're walking or you have a car. Whether you have a house or whether you're in someone's shed. You have infinite and eternal wealth. And this is what Paul is helpfully saying. I know how to be abased. And I've come to know how to abound. The word for abounding here is perisuo. To abound. To go beyond the, the need. Go beyond the measure. I've, I've got a larder and it's full. And I've got all, this other, all these other sacks on the counter. I can't put them in. I can't, there's no more space. That's abound. I know how to, to, to abound. And what's the secret? In everything and in all things. I think that's neat, he says in Greek. In ponti, kai, and pasin. In everything and in all things, I have learned the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be without. <clears throat> There's a counterfeit of this contentment that Paul portrays in Eastern mysticism. The counterfeit is that you need to learn in gazing at the lotus to, to disconnect from passion and care one way or the other. That basically you become part of the collective universe or something. Um, and in your thinking, you consciously arrive there so that you can receive the ultimate enlightenment of, well, in Hindu nirvana. Well, um, this is not a dispassionate 
lack of regard for life. Paul has very clear desires. In fact, we started in verse 10, or yeah, verse 10. I rejoiced greatly, megalos, I rejoiced greatly at the reception of your gift. Paul really does care. He's very passionate. So this is not the undoing of the human in, cap- in, in the capacity to have, have commitment and passion to things. That's, the, that's where the counterfeit breaks down because it's an impersonal force that is providing the energy supposedly in the, in the Hindu Buddhism thing. God is a personal God who has real desires. You're bearing his image. You have real desires. And so the secret is not to not care. The secret is to do something that you desperately care about. But it's not whether you have stuff. It's not whether you have a lot or you have a little. This is the remedy for Marxism. Marxism undergirding a growing majority of the thinking of the country we live in today whether it's in the liberal arts on the college campuses halls of academ in the mass media of our time without regard to foreign actors in communist states like china <laughs> it is china Without regard to that, I think we already had a tendency of moving in our progressivism away from God into Marxist thinking because the very, I mean, Marxism is posit there's no God. We start with no God. And so whatever is left is what we have to do with all the material. Very ingenious if you disregard God. If all that's left is man, then we're going to have to make something of this. And... Not caring about God, not caring about, about life, not caring about um, whether you have little or a lot isn't the answer. Not caring, uh, not connecting to your creator is the opposite of the answer. And in, in this, Paul is going to tell you the basis for human flourishing. Why I say this passage undoes Marxism is because the Marxist project requires a lot of people to basically agree together in their discontent. This is the passage that emphasizes Christian contentment because you're always in the banquet hall of Psalm 23. You're always feasting, as it were, on the bread of life. And so you, you have no reason in, in being abased. You have no reason for discontent because your life is not your circumstances. Your life is Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And so if we take God out of the picture, then all there is is your circumstances and the material around you. But if you connect to your creator, as Paul's pointing you to, then it's not about your circumstances. And so when Christians start talking about social justice and feeding the Marxist collective discontent, which eventually motivates the mob, French Revolution or Russian Revolution style, to kill the property owners, when that, when that happens, they've, they've channeled something very primal in the human sin nature that is very co- contradictory to what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. You, in other words, you can't be a Christian thinking Christian thoughts and feed the discontent, whatever the discontent is. What about unrighteous governance? My favorite discontented prophet in the Old Testament is Habakkuk. Have you read Habakkuk lately? I love it because it's so straightforward. It's a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. It's kind of like a two-person play for two chapters. And then there's this massive psalm of God's glorious deliverance, I believe, portraying the second advent of Christ. Habakkuk starts out with a complaint. Do you see what's going on around here, God? This country is going to hell in a handbasket. These people are perverting your perfect law to oppress the righteous. And there's no righteous act that comes out of any judicial act to action. No righteousness comes out of any, any judicial function. It's all evil everywhere. Everybody's filled with violence. The idolatry is, is horrific. And probably in his day, they are sacrificing infants to Molech. Don't you understand what's going on? And, and 
Habakkuk, looking at his circumstances, sees a collapse, sees a horrible historical situation. And God says, yeah, I talked about this in Deuteronomy. I said, when you follow after idols, I'm going to sell you in to captivity to other countries, to the pagan countries. You want idols? Okay, you're going to go work for the idolaters. That's what he tells Israel. He tells them that on the outset before they go into the land on the plains of Moab. And so here it is, Habakkuk, I'm doing something in your day. Don't worry about it. I've got this, but I want it to be my way. I want you to go in here with a divine laser beam and just take out all the wicked people and just leave us remnant here to serve you the way we want to serve you. And God doesn't do it that way. He sends Nebuchadnezzar and raises the whole thing. He destroys everything. burns the city, kills most of the people, deports a huge population of them. And here we go with the book of Daniel. God is doing something in our day. And we have a responsibility to make our decisions as actors in our state and so forth. But we need to look at this from the big picture before we move forward with that. We need to be ready to be content with whatever circumstances we find ourselves, because you always have the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he's already said it in 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You always have the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always your circumstance. So you always have cause for rejoicing. And so he's echoing this thought here when he says, I know how the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be without. I'm kind of exegeting the passage as I apply it with you to the time in which you live, because we desperately need this. We do not know what it means historically to miss a meal unless you've been in a, a strange situation. But that may come. And if, uh, if the people rattling the saber, agitating for violence in our streets, the young men in their righteous indignation saying time for civil war, and I mean on the left, those that are calling for reprisals of, uh, of Republicans and so forth. If, if, if it goes to violence, don't be a young man and say, oh, good. The young men that agitate for violence don't think about the consequence of how quickly they'll be old men. Because civil war means starvation. It means mass disease. It means famine. It's a horror for any country that has to endure it. Paul says, though, regardless of his circumstances of having a lot or a little, I have eskuo. I am powerful. All things I am powerful in the one who enables me, dunameo, to enable, to dunamai, to make one capable, powerful. Christ. I have the power to do all things through the one who enables me, namely Christ. The majority of manuscripts name him Christ. The oldest manuscripts we have do not name him, but it's still talking about Christ, the one who enables me. I have the power. Now I've changed the translation from the traditional King James approach, which said, I am able, because usually uh, this word is talking about strength. And it could be ability. And this word is generally talking about ability. But the point is that because of the one who is enabling or strengthening me, I have the capability to do all things. Now, this is one of those memory verses that we teach the children and we should. Philippians 4.13, it is a life verse like uh, 2.21, um, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. 1.21, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. It's a great summary verse. I, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. I am, I am strong. I'm strong enough to do all things through the one who empowers me would be another possible translation. But boy, this one is much better in context, isn't it? Verse 13 is not a memory verse outside of a context. He says, when I don't have much, I can be strong enough to manage. And when I have a lot, I'm able to manage 
because of the one who is making me able to manage. In other words, the material circumstance that I'm in is very different from the spiritual circumstance that I'm in. And because of the spiritual situation, it doesn't matter which, whether a lot or a little, I can handle because of the one who's enabling me, who's strengthening me. In other words, I am spiritually capable of dealing with my circumstances, spiritually capable of dealing with my circumstances. This is not a one-off on just anything I want to do. I can do because the, the Lord is empowering me. This is that he's strengthening me to manage my, my situation. Now let's think about abasing and abounding. I've, I've gone to the, the, <laughs> the loss of basic services collapse idea, the economic collapses as a place where you have to face abounding or, or, or suffering loss, being abased. Let's talk about before that, like right where we are right now. Some of you are struggling with the friendship problem. I mean, we all are in one way or the other. How does the friendship problem work? Well, if I'm abased, then I don't have a lot of friends and that's a struggle. If I'm abounding, then I do have a lot of friends and that's a different kind of struggle. And I need the first relationship with God to strengthen me to deal with the other relationships. Just as one example, what's the secret to dealing with the basing or abounding in friendships? The one who's empowering you. What about, what about quite separate from economic situation, personal success, personal satisfaction? Sometimes we're not, we're in, we're not, we're not hitting home runs. Sometimes we're striking out and we want to, we want to hit home runs, but just sometimes you're in a season where not happening. What do you do in such a, such a situation? Well, you redefine for God's sake, you, you come up with his definition of success. And if you're trusting him, if you're walking in dependence on him, if you're saturated with his word because you're daily meditating on the word as the scripture says if you're seeking first the kingdom and i hope you understand how you relate to that and his righteousness if you're on mission in other words then you are being successful you are hitting home runs and it doesn't matter about the way the world evaluates it because you've got your treasures up in heaven Anyway, the, the, the personal relationship with God bails me out of the circumstances of life is the, is the summary of verses 12 and 13. Whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm hungry or satisfied, I can, do, I can handle the circumstance because of the one making me able to handle the circumstance. And that is the gift Paul gives the Philippians to think through what they're doing. I've seen it before where uh, people would not be Philippians. They wouldn't give to the advance of the gospel ministry because they knew that God was ultimately taking care of the ministry and taking care of them. And so he would do it. If God wants to advance the work, then he'll do it. And I don't need to give to advance the work. It's God's grace. You know, we don't grace giving, <laughs> right? And can you think through where the, I mean, that's a person like a cartoon character out on a limb sawing it off from the wrong side. It really is because all you're doing, if you go with that attitude is you're cutting yourself. Of course, God's going to do the work, but he's going to use human channels to do it. You're just sh shutting yourself off from the participation. It's God's project. He's going to accomplish it. Are you going to be part of how he does that? I want to play. Let me, let me get in there. And that's, that's the, um, that's the, the principle of reciprocity. God's already capitalized us. He told us what he, what, what he wants from us. Are we going to give it to him? So Paul gives him this gift of, of connecting your spiritual life to your material circumstances, and they're not disconnected. They're very intimately connected. And so spiritual life first, and then material consequences follow. 
Nevertheless, you've done well by sharing together in my tribulation. Philipsis, usually we translate tribulation. Philipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Nevertheless, you have done well by sharing together in my affliction. Now, what that means is that um, I do not rejoice in the gift itself, but for the, for the fruit he's going to say. And I, I know how to go without, but you've made me abound. And so, you know, the secret is, is Christ. It's not the gift, right? So don't be materialistic. And I mean, in the sense of all there is, is the, ma- the matter. But by the way, you have done well by in the power of Christ sharing with me and my affliction. You've done well is poieo. And that word means to do. It's the basic Greek word for to do, P-O-I-E-O. And I'm bringing this one out because I want to very clearly explain what is God's agenda for us in this dispensation. And the power of God, the Holy Spirit, under the grace of God, listen to it. He says, poieo, you have done. And the thing that they've done is described as an adverb, kalos, K-A-L-O-S, which is translated well. In English slang parlance, we might say you've done good. It is beautiful the way this word good works. It's the, it's the good of beauty, of attractiveness. You've done a beautiful piece of work here is kind of the idea. And this is something that you've got to connect to your spiritual life. It doesn't say that you've metabolized. It doesn't say that you've believed the word and processed it and cycled it. It doesn't say that. It says by your actual choice to act and the carrying out of that choice in acting, it's a beautiful piece of work. You've done well. This is being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. You understand, I hope you understand. The spiritual life is not learning and going and coming back to learn and then going. That's not the Christian spiritual life. If I believe what he's saying and I continue to believe what he's saying, then that will issue forth in me choosing to do, which is not the same as believing, but I'll choose to do what he's saying. And so this is, this is, I know it's a subtle, we just kind of read through it. You've done well, but I want to do well. I want to have, have a well done said on my account. Another place to bring this out is in second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10, where we have the judgment seat of Christ most explicitly stated. Paul says it in many places. He talks about the reckoning or the judgment of the believer, but second Corinthians uh, chapter five, verse 10 is the most explicit place where he says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now listen to it to receive recompense. That means payback. That's reciprocity to receive payback for the deeds that we've done for the works that we've worked in the body, whether good or bad. It really is that God empowered you for work that he wants you to do. And so it's always God's grace that we have work to do. You've done well by sharing together in my affliction or my tribulation, Paul says. So it is on the one hand, not essential for me to have a gift because what's essential to me is Jesus Christ and his empowerment. And, and if Paul starves to death, understand he's empowered to do so gloriously by the Lord. And if Paul is supported and able to manage the abundance without getting distracted by it, then he's able to manage the abundance and the power that the Lord gives him. This is something Americans have desperately needed and lost over the last half century, I believe, as we've been so prosperous, but we haven't, we haven't connected the material wealth to the creator who is the giver of all that is given. So we've lost the ability to manage the prosperity and therefore we have sacrificed the gift because we've, we've forgotten the giver. I think that's the prosperity test. We've as a collective, I mean, we failed it. Maybe you haven't failed it. We as a people have failed it. So all the money spent to indoctrinate our, indoctrinate our children in godlessness so that an hour on Sunday is supposed to combat a week of, of godlessness, cultural in every possible way. No, it, it didn't work out that way. And all that money we spent 
basically on saying no to the creator and teaching the kids to say no to the creator. Guess what we've reaped from that sowing? We've, we've gotten a culture that says no to the creator. But Paul says, okay, so the material wealth is not essential. The Lord is essential, but the Lord can use the material wealth. And he says, but by God using you to present this, it is a good job. You've done well by sharing together. The word sharing together is sukoineo. Uh, um, and uh, it's from sukoin, uh, it's from the word koinonia, fellowship or sharing and having in common. You know, we're speaking koine Greek and koine just means common. And so... The idea of koinonia or fellowship is actually sharing. It isn't a static, we're just all sitting there. It's a sharing together. The portrait, I hope you understand, of a koinonia is a meal from one platter. And everybody has a portion. We're enjoying it together. We fellowship with God in his righteousness. We feast, as it were, on his righteousness together with him. That's 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then... Uh, we have fellowship with one another. We and God have fellowship with one another. That's what he's talking about in First John 1. Not, not we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God. And I know so because he says, and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship with God is this walking in the light. It's fe feasting, as it were, on his righteousness, on his goodness, on his glory, on his holiness. And so here Paul says, you have fellowshiped with me. And it's got a, a, a soon attached to it a with it's a fellowshipping with so it's an intensification on the sharing so they've given something abundantly is the point and they have fellowship together is my translation shared together with me in my tribulation and my affliction this is the giving of the philippians but you know indeed you i had to do something here you know kai humes and you the you is, is embedded in the verb. So we have to account for the use of this pronoun. My English Bible has attempted this. It says, you yourselves also know. You yourselves. That yourselves is bringing out this kai humes, this and you. you I've, in, I've, I've done an extensive use of kai with indeed. You know, indeed you. It's emphatic. Philippians. I'm now putting a spotlight on you specifically. I mean, the whole letter is to them, but it's a spotlight on them for what comes next. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, what's the beginning of the gospel? When Paul first shared with them, this is the beginning of their experience of the gospel. It's early in Paul's sharing of Christ. His first letter is to the Thessalonians, which came right after he visited the Philippians. I mean, he wrote the first, I'm sorry, the second letter we have of Paul is Thessalonians. The first is Galatians. And so this is early in Paul's ministry, but it's very early in their experience. They're new Christians. They can articulate the gospel that God has sent his son in the flesh of man to die for our sins. And his son, Jesus, rose from the dead on the third day because he conquered death. And we must trust in him to have eternal life that God is offering us. And they understand that they're Christians. They understand whatever Paul was able to share with them for a very short period, but it was a short time before things got hot in Philippi and he had to leave. So from the very beginning of the gospel, they shared with him when I departed from Macedonia, went down to Achaia. That's in Corinth where he spent a lot of time. He had a, the door open in Corinth. There wasn't support, but there was lots of harvest to harvest in Corinth. So he left Macedonia and went down to Achaia. And right after these new Christians understood the gospel and Paul had to leave them, he's sending letters, he's sending emissaries to go teach them. But after he had to leave, they started sending support. They supported Paul when he first came to them. Lydia set up the, her house, became the church, would gather in her home. Is the first kind of church in Philippi with this house of uh, this merchant woman, Lydia, this successful business lady, apparently. And so quickly, the spirit had given gifts of giving. And quickly, these people understand, let's advance the mission. Jesus has told us he wants to make disciples. So early Christians, I mean, early in their spiritual lives, they're supporting Paul and no one else is. They're the only one supporting it. It's interesting. Now, God is the one advancing the gospel mission. God is the one empowering Paul. God is the one advancing uh, 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 
the Philippians to understand. He's the one that's ultimately sending the money. He gave the Philippians the money. He gave the Philippians the urge to give the money. It's all God, understand. But he's using human channels to advance this gospel. And that's the way his commands work. He's going to get his way. The question with you is, is he's going to get his way specifically through you? It's your choice. It's our choice. Do we become Philippians or are we going to be Corinthians? No church share with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the Corinthians, how they're rich. But they're not rich in the gospel. They're not advancing the gospel mission. Only, only the Philippians. That also in Thessaloniki, both once and twice, you, unto my need you sent. When I was still in Macedonia, when I was still in Macedonia, just a couple towns over, you supported me. And this was a very interesting thing because this means that within a period of three or six weeks, a short period of time, two big offerings came in from Lydia's people from the Philippians. So Paul is recounting now with them how they've given in the past. You've done this before and here you're doing it again. Back when no one would support me, you're the only ones that supported me. And so this is an honor to them. I think the point of verses 14 through 16 for you and me is that we want to be Philippians. I think it's the honor roll of eternity that these people were used by God to get serious about the Bible or the word as they were presented it. You know, the Old Testament scrolls they might have had access to, even though there's no synagogue in Philippi, they meet at the river. But um, they're serious enough about God's word and about God's mission from what they've learned from Paul that from the very start, they're advancing it. They're, hey, set up a missionary center here in Philippi. And then as he leaves, well, we can't feed you here. So you're going there. We're going to feed you there. And they, and they immediately become a missionary sending institution, this little church. So twice, even when I was in a short time in Thessaloniki, you sent unto my need. That was a lot of work to go dig out what's going on in Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 16 and see how these collide. But the point is that he was very short in Thessaloniki and they, they still sent missionary support to him twice. So verse 17, not that I'm seeking after the gift. He couldn't be more clear. He said it so many times. He said it in verse 12. Verse 11, I don't speak from want because I'm content in my circumstances. He even has to say, nevertheless, in verse 14, you did well to support me. You're doing the right thing, even though I can go without or go with. Not that I'm seeking after the gift, but I'm seeking after the fruit, which increases to your account. Not that I'm seeking after the gift, but I'm seeking after the fruit, which increases to your, literally your word, logos. Cynically, we would say, yeah, right. It's not the gift, mom and dad. It's your love that sent me the gift. It's Christmas morning, little kids tearing up the presents, tearing them open, you know. Dad, do you have any batteries? <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the remote control car that I've wanted all year. It's the love that you, you know. <laughs> we love seeing them play with the things we give them. We love that they love them. And that's how our father is too. But Paul is mature enough now, and I pray that you are growing that way where you're not after the thing, you're after the one who gave the thing. I'm not seeking after the gift. In fact, I know that if you are giving in the power of the Spirit, that this is God's fruit of John chapter 15, and it's the fruit of the Spirit and in Galatians chapter 5, and this is glorifying God as he's getting a harvest out of you. So I'm looking actually to see how you honor God, how you are bringing glory and magnifying God's glory in your lives. That's what I'm after. He's also happy for them because they're fulfilling their purpose. You're getting fruit. You're storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. This is a test of your faith in effect because we would so quickly say in our mercenary mindset that um, we would say uh, perhaps that we um, don't believe him, that he didn't want the gift, that he wanted just to see them advance because their gift advances them because it glorifies God. 
You see, no, Paul is teaching us. He is showing us a cross-section of Christian motivation. And the secret is still the secret. Is uh, It's him. It's about God who strengthens me. So I'm seeking after the fruit which increases to your account. I'm happy for you for what it means that you gave this gift. I'm happy because I know I've done the math. It's just logic. God is going to advance you because of you're glorifying him. And that's reciprocity. Now I have all things in full. Indeed, I have abundance, he says. So this is my current situation. The larder is full. In fact, the larder is overflowing. I have sacks and sacks outside stacked on the counter. I've been filled. My Bible says I have received everything in full, have an abundance. I'm deeply, I'm amply supplied, but this word is Plerao in the perfect tense. I have been, that's perfect, completed action in the past, filled. I've been filled, literally, excuse me, figuratively, but the lang- but I mean, the word says filled. And so the, the figure he's saying is that every, every need he has has been met. And then he says, because I received because of receiving in the participle decomai, because I received from Epaphroditus, the one that sent his, his gift that he sent the letter back with the things from you, ta par humon, the things from you, I received from him. And then he describes the gift that they gave. Now, these people took up a collection like Paul often does a collection for the, for the saints in Jerusalem. He has taken up a collection. Listen to this, what he says. The, the gift that you sent me, let's say so many pounds of silver, because that's the money, uh, the, the coin that is money. Let's say that it's money or resources, probably money from this merchant and those in, in the church in her home. The way to think about the gift that was given is threefold. It's a fragrant aroma. That's Old Testament language for an offering to God that would be soothing and pleasing to him because of its smell. And it's illustrated by when you uh, throw some onions on the grill alongside some steak. If you smell onions cooking in some olive oil, I'm talking about the cast iron pan on the side of the grill while the steak is cooking. That is what you call a fragrant aroma. And when people say, I just don't understand the millennial sacrifices, why they're going to be sacrificed in the millennium. I'm like, go to a smokehouse, go to any place where they're cooking beef and just sit in the parking lot. <laughs> God is good. <laughs> it's a, it's by the way, millennial sacrifices, Ezekiel are memorials to what Jesus accomplished. But this is the way Paul says that their giving is it's a fragrant aroma, Old Testament style sacrifice. They're not in the old, old order. It's not the giving of Israel. This is church age giving. This is why we have the Bible today because of this kind of giving. It's why we have anything in the Christian life because, because we have the words of Paul uh, that were sponsored by the Philippians. A fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice. This is your Romans 12 sacrifice of life. Make no mistake, we church age believers who are priests in a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, we have a sacrifice that we bring. And in this case, Paul is describing the monetary support for the gospel mission, a fragrant aroma, a sacrifice to God. And what that means is that if you had a herd in Israel and you got the best one, the one that without without spot or blemish, the best uh, ox or bull, and you brought this offering, then that you had less heard than you would have had if you hadn't brought the offering. I mean, well, why would I do this offering? I mean, I can just make more beefs this way and not do the offering. I mean, I've got, I've got 20 beefs and I'm going to take one and give it to God, the good one. Why would I do that? Because if I do that, then I've only got 19. But see, if I, if I keep all 20, then that's more. See, and that's the, that's, I'm just showing you, that's what a sacrifice is. You don't have 20. Now you've got 19. Well, I, I, I want all 20. Then I've got more and that see that's material. 
And materialism is the belief that all there is is what I can see. And not seeing that, wait a second. You mean, here's the way you're supposed to think about this. I can sell, I can get rid of one cow and give it to God, one bull. And he's going to advance his agenda with that resource. He's going to use that thing that he gave me, that I gave him back. He's going to use that to advance his agenda and store up treasures for me in heaven because I have advanced his and played along with what he wants me to do, be part of his mission. That's exactly what we, so all it costs is, is a bull. Well, actually you can give as many bulls as you want. Really? I can store these, these treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. It's a totally different way of thinking about it. It's materialism versus theism. And that's, that's the argument Paul is sharing with us that what you've done here is a sacrifice. That is the third thing, well-pleasing to God. You know, it's possible to offer a sacrifice biblically. It's possible to offer a sacrifice to God that is not well-pleasing. Anybody know of a sacrifice in the Bible that's not well-pleasing to God? I can think of a couple. Yeah, Cain is the first one. Cain offers the, 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 the vegetables. God doesn't want that. Back to the steakhouse. Any other sacrifices come to mind? The two sons of Aaron. Hophni and Phinehas offered strange fire. They got the formula wrong. They didn't use the recipe God gave them for the incense. And they offered an incense that wasn't what God had, had required. Hey, this smells okay. Let's try this. And what happened? God burst forth in fire from the offering and consumed them and forbade Aaron to, to mourn them. You don't mess with God's way. He wants it. But see, it's, it's possible to offer a sacrifice that's not well-pleasing to God. I think Paul gets to this in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says that God loves a cheerful giver. We're not under compulsion. Hey, do you want to be part of God's work? He's saying, I'm going to get my job done, whether you're part of it or not, but you are certainly invited in Christ to join me. That's the way Christian giving works. And it isn't just money. This is about money in this context. It's about you. It's about your substance, your resources, your talent, your time, your energy, whatever resources that you have. This giving, Paul says, has been acceptable to God. And then the promise. The de tells you to follow. D-E. What comes next advances your argument. And so I've translated it. And so that's a consequence. Because of this offering to God, my God will supply, fill up, plerao, same word as before, all of your needs. He says, I've been filled in verse 18, when it says amply supplied, he says, I've been filled here. He says, my God will fill you. It's the same word, but the English translators see fit to not tell you what these words are so that you won't see it's the same word. That's why Greek is so, it's so good to learn it and be able to see it in its original. So my God will fill up all your needs. What, what how's he going to do that? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So you did, you just um, you get, did some holy laundering. Okay. You took wealth that God gave you on earth and you parlayed it into eternal riches. That's really what happens here. And it's not just eternal riches. He's going to take care of your needs here and now. And so this is the biblical doctrine of reciprocity, which after the Lord's table today, we will look at because it's been it's been counterfeited as a health and wealth gospel. It's been presented as, as like this mercenary thing. And, and we are right to reject a mercenary impulse. This is about what's your life for. What are you here for? This is about what the Christian life really is all about. And it does focus on this promise and this provision to be on mission. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We close this morning to offer eternal life to anyone who may be in the hearing my voice. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in a moment um, where Jesus is uh, the God man who died for our sins and rose from the dead to offer you eternal life. Um, love for you to be part of that. But more importantly, I'd love for you to have the eternal life that God offers. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. Talking to disciples of our Lord Jesus, those who are committed to his work as believers, always drives us to talk about 
acceptable sacrifices, what we bring in offering to God. However, as an unbeliever, as someone who does not have eternal life, as someone who doesn't have God, there's nothing you have to give him. There's nothing you have except need. There's nothing you have except your condemnation within your sin. We're, we're called in sin. We're called dead in trespasses and sins. And that means separated from God. And what you need is not to give anything. It is to trust in the gift that has been given for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for this eternal life and this privilege of living it in the ministries that you've committed to us, including giving. Help us be serious about your works and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.